Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. This is episode 221 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. And this week, we have a very exciting interview with a one-of-a-kind guest. Uh, really is the best way to describe him. My guest is Toymaker, inventor, executive, sculptor, and now author. I'm talking about the author of the brand new book coming out soon, A Game Maker's Life by my guest, Jeffrey Breslow. Mr. Breslow is responsible for so many games we all know and love. Games like Simon, Mousetrap, Operation, Gestures, uh, and of course one of my own personal favorites, the Evil Knievel Motorbike. Oh my gosh, I spent so many hours with that thing every day after I got that for Christmas. Mr. Breslow is now in the Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, He is quite the curious mind, uh, very creative kind of guy and we're having a really wonderful discussion today talking about his past uh, such a rich history and uh, lots of stories about how things came together uh, one thing or another including among them Simon how the game of Simon came about uh, we're discussing how retirement is a bad word and that uh, as he describes it he, he didn't retire he just changed careers because uh, he's now a full-time sculptor We find the incredible power of a teacher's influence on his life. We get some insight into his sculpting career and a few pieces that he's worked on. And uh, so much more. It's really a a, a wealth of information into his life. And uh, talking more about this book, uh, Game Maker's Life, which comes out August 30th, a week from now after this episode comes out. And I, I know and it's just it's such a good conversation. I cannot wait to get you over to it. It's going to be coming up here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, before we do that, I want to thank my sponsor Scrivener. Scrivener's been with us for several years now, and uh, they do I do all of my writing on that platform. Hey, check out this advertisement for how you can save twenty percent on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. And thank you once again to Scrivener. I also want to thank affiliate of the show, Writer's Block Coffee. Uh, They are home to three delicious flavors of coffee. There is the signature Writer's Block Blend. There is the Deadline Dark and my personal favorite, the Whiskey Barrel Aged Blend. Uh, You can try one, you can try them all, you can order one time or you can set it up for monthly automatic shipments. Uh, Whichever way you go, you will not be disappointed 
And uh, as an affiliate of the show, that means that whenever you make an order, not only will you save 10% if you follow my link in the show notes, or if you go to writersblockcoffee.com and use coupon code SAMPLECHAPTER, then you'll save 10%. And then the show also gets a little kickback uh, to help out with anything uh, show-related. Speaking of coffee, uh, I've done a thing. Uh, (laughs) I went in and set up. I had a few people asking how they could support the show, how they could do things, uh, but they weren't interested in coffee. They weren't interested in you know t-shirts and stuff at Tee Public, but they just wanted to help out the show. So I did a thing this past week and I got set up on buymeacoffee.com. So if you go over to buymeacoffee.com slash sample chapter, you'll see our uh, very simple looking page right now. And, and you can support the show. You can offer to uh, uh, set something up and uh, support the show. on a, I, guess, I guess it's a monthly basis. I'm, I'm actually pretty new to that. I uh, was trying to decide whether to go with Patreon or with this. But, uh, you know, the, it, this was a, this is a new thing for the show. So we'll see how this goes. I don't know if anybody is serious about wanting to, to do something. But, uh, you know, I think that'd be... I think it'd be pretty fun if uh, this was a fan supported show and i wanted to if you guys wanted to help out then that's great if not hey it doesn't matter everything on here is free to your ears anytime you like (laughs) as well as our wealthy backlist of more than 200 episodes of incredible authors and sample chapters and uh, speaking of shows i want to thank pop goes the culture network home to about a dozen other shows all of them fun all of them pop culture related so if you are interested in anything in that general genre, then make sure you follow the link in the show notes over to the Pop Goes the Culture Network home and check out all the fantastic shows that they have to offer. Well, as for me, it is uh, September is coming fast. I'm working hard on my short story. <laughs> Hi, Bandit. <laughs> uh, working hard on my short story. That's going to be, uh, i got to have the first draft, well, uh, first, uh, I have to have an edited draft ready and submitted by September 1st, so I am I am hard at work on that right now. And, uh, and then on the side, I'm also still working hard on Bandit 2, and it's it's coming along, it's coming along, I'm really happy with it, and uh, rest assured I will let you all know when uh, when I have something ready to go. But speaking of ready to go, how about we go ahead and hop on over to our interview with the incredibly creative Jeffrey Bressler. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Wow, today we are taking a little uh, jump back in the Wayback Machine, uh, riding down memory lane, going back to the days of our childhood and... uh, kind of reliving some of those memories with the games and toys that we all grew up with because my guest author today is none other than the inventor of so many of those beloved toys Jeffrey Breslow. Jeffrey Breslow is a preeminent toy and game inventor and designer who spent over spent over 41 years inventing toys and games ever since graduating with a BFA from University of Illinois in industrial design in 1965. By the age of 34, he was the youngest managing partner of Marvin Glass and Associates, the leading 
toy design company in the world at that time of 1976. They invented such games as Simon, Operation, Gestures, and the Evil Knievel Motorcycle, which I had myself, along with Mousetrap and Uno Attack. In 1988, Jeffrey was inducted to the National Toy Hall of Fame in New York City. Uh, he left the business in 2008 to become a full-time sculptor, and now you can add author to that exquisite resume of it. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to the show, Jeffrey Breslow. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and chat with you. I, the, the pleasure is all mine. I've been just loving this book and uh going down so many memory lanes i i can't even like read very much because i'm every time i read a little bit i'm telling my wife oh you remember this book this game and she and i are just shooting memories back and forth and talking and uh she likes to make fun of me because i could never play mousetrap all the way through i always <laughs> I, I love just setting it up and then let's get it going <laughs> okay <laughs> So how how are you doing? How, how's uh, things I'm doing, going? I'm doing great. Uh, the book has been very exciting for me. I actually started it five years ago, and I never realized it would take quite as long to do. But when I started to write, uh, I'm a very good typist, but I got notebooks, uh, and I wrote it all in longhand. And what that did was slow me down, you know, and I it, it helped my memory to remember all the things I was trying to do so it was a it was a nice process for me and then of course i could hardly read my scribbling but i was able to and, and ended up typing it up and getting a publisher and uh you know and when i signed the deal with the publishing company a year ago they said i said how long would it take and they said it'll take about a year i said a year and that's what that's what it's taken so <laughs> anyhow it's been it's been a, a wonderful thing for me it's really and primarily, I, I started this as a gift for my four grandsons, who are 14, 12, 9, and 6. Uh, okay. Because they, they kind of know what I did, but they really didn't know all the stories and everything else. So, uh, you know, who knows how long I'll be here, but it's a gift for, basically for them. Wow. That's pretty cool. And, you know, it's funny because I, I talked to some authors who, like myself, once I uh, became a grandparent or found out I was going to be a grandparent, that's when I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm supposed to be an author by now, I'm supposed to be uh, be a writer. So that's when I got serious about it and it took me a couple of years before my first book came out. But so it's fascinating that, I mean, you're the same way. It's like, you know, this was a gift for your grandchildren and uh, going forward from there. And that's amazing that you took the time to write this out longhand. I was going to ask about that process because uh, you spent you know, after, after 40 plus years of working into it, and then you've been retired for quite a while. What was that well, like uh, going back? Well, to I, I hate the R word. I haven't been retired. I just changed <laughs> careers. I mean, I'm a full-time sculptor. I've been doing that for 13, 14 years. But when I'm in town, uh, I'm at my studio seven days a week. I was there this morning. So I, I don't like that word for me. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. what are you retired from? I just decided it was, I, I knew that I wanted to sculpt when I left the toy business. And so I started doing it while I was still working there. And I stepped down as president and made my younger partner president. And I hung around for a year and a half, but he was so good. I could have left at any time and he would have been fine. And I, one of the things I'm most proud of is that uh, my other two partners who left the business before I did, I was the last one to leave that the business is still going on and still very successful. And I think that, if you're a good uh, manager, president of a company, and, and you, you, your goal is to make it run without you, 
You know, I mean, mm. if you leave and it doesn't work, you you haven't been, in my opinion, you haven't done a very good job of running the company. Yeah, yeah, I, I can agree with that. And, you know, and that's one of the, uh, let's see, how do you put this? The silver linings um, that uh, I remember hearing a lot about uh, during the, the pandemic, uh, when COVID first hit and everybody was staying home, was everybody started playing games again, uh, board games. <laughs> and trying new things and i remember hearing people talking about oh my gosh we got this big argument over an uno game and you know trying to operation and different stuff and that that was pretty cool to hear so many people though going back to my my kids uh my wife and i we had always made sure to have a wealth of uh, board games that we love to play with the kids and about once a month we would sit down with them and and play something to uh, try and keep their interest away from the tv and away from the video games once in a while so that's good then to... i i think it's great that's coming back i mean the video games are very solitaire they're very kind of selfish but the the fun of playing with other people and learning how to win and lose gracefully it, it, it's mm-hmm. very socializing and, and i think it's quite important and and i've always said that a good game is a good combination of skill and luck i mean the only game that's just totally skill is a game of chess you know and and the good player will beat the okay player all the time but but other types of games, uh, there's a combination of both, and there's a good balance between the two. And, and I like to say, if I'm playing a game and, and I win, it's because I'm skillful. If you win, well, you got lucky cards or you got lucky roll of the dice or something. Let's play again. <laughs> so that's, you know, I think that's what we look for in, in a game, that it's the right combination of both things, skill and luck. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's very true. I, I would say that's where something like Operation comes in, too. Some you gotta have that skill of having a steady hand and a little bit of luck to get that. Uh, what was it? The wishbone? Right. I think it was the <laughs> hardest one to get out. Oh my gosh! Right. <laughs> I remember my my grandfather. Uh, he we got that for Christmas one year uh, when I was younger, and I think within the first hour, my grandfather was like, "Hey, let me see that game," and then he like unhooked the buzzer on there so we could still see the light. We knew when it lit up, but he was like, "That's enough of that in there." <laughs> Yeah, very cute. So now you didn't start off uh, looking to to get into a game or a, a, a yeah. job like this. It was kind of an accident. Uh, well, I, I wasn't motivated when I was in high school. I wasn't a very good student. When when I was a kid, I I loved taking things apart. You know, I mean that was a big thing for me: building things, things taking things apart, uh, see how they worked. So I was always intrigued with that. Uh, and, and one of the first things my dad. There was a bar across from his factory and they had a nickel slot machines and these were all mechanical, no electronics, no bells and whistles, just a mechanical device. And he bought one. Uh, the, the guy had to get rid of them. He said the police were coming down on him and get rid of them. So my dad bought one for $25 and brought it home. And, you know, I would put nickels in there and I said, dad, can I open up the back and see how this thing works? And he said, <laughs> okay, but don't take it apart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I spent weeks because you pulled this arm and there were escapements, springs, everything. And that whole thing, it took the nickel and it put it in the kitty in the back. It put it in the jackpot. It put it in the payout thing. And and it was fascinating how it knew what to do with all these escapements, springs and everything else. It was quite something, but I actually, I could make it pay out by holding the wheels 
in waiting, turning up to the bars, but I never did take it all apart, but I studied it and it was just, I was fascinated by it. So I was always mechanically minded. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I wasn't a very good student in high school. I only A in high school was an art class. I had a wonderful teacher. The rest were not very good. And then I ended up going to a small school uh, I could have gone to the University of Illinois, uh, even though I graduated in the bottom quarter of my high school class, they would have accepted me. But I started at a small school. And uh, at the end of the first year, I was on terminal probation, which was not something my folks were happy to hear. <laughs> and I, I took a weekend trip just to Illinois to see some friends. And I went into the art and design building, which was new. And there was a display of industrial design in a corridor. I didn't even know what industrial design was, but I was blown away by the display and it was instructor Ed Zagorski, and his office was across the hall. He was sitting there, you know, in sandals and a T-shirt and wild hair. And he was 39 years old. I was 18. And I said, tell me about design. And in 20 minutes, he changed my life. And wow. uh, so I, I went back. I got good grades so I could transfer. And then I had to start over again as a freshman. So my first year and a half of college was down the drain. But my folks were happy. I had something that I was in love with. And... Uh, so Ed Zagorski was my mentor for uh, a little over 65 years. He died a year and a half ago at 99 and a quarter. Okay. Oh, wow. he, he, he said, if you ask a little kid, the kid's three and a half, I'm four and three quarters. He said, if you're over 90, you can start using fractions again. I said, okay. <laughs> but, but he mentored me uh, my whole life and was a dear friend. And I got into mentoring programs uh, Later on at the University of Illinois, I went back there to mentor other kids and uh, learned about a lot about that. That's amazing. What was uh, what was one of the first uh, toys or games that you uh, started off with uh, once you started? Well, with I, what happened is we did a toy project in Ed Zagorski's class, sophomore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was designed a toy or a game, something new, original. And I... Uh, and in design, it's graded by a jury of the faculty because it's subjective. You know, it's not like a math problem or something else. So it, somebody might like it, somebody not. So it was all jury graded. And I did this children's modular furniture. I made a little prototype and then I made big ones that blocks that fit together. And they were an easel, a seat, a stool. And I took some Kodachrome slides in a, you know, a kindergarten room. And uh, so mine thing came in second, which was just astounding for me. The thing that came in first was a little blue box that had zigzag openings, a probe, wasn't a tweezers, a probe and a buzzer. And you put it in there and the thing buzzed. And this was John Spinello. And I said, what are you going to do with that thing? He said, I got an uncle in Chicago who works for a guy by the name of Marvin Glass. I said, what do they do? He said, it's a toy design company. Are you kidding? You know? <laughs> and, and John graduated six months ahead of me. He took the box to see Marvin. Marvin wasn't hiring. He said, I'll give you $500 for the box. And John sold the box for $500. Now, at that time, a semester tuition at the University of Illinois for in-state student was $470 for a semester. So $500 was a semester tuition, you know. So John mm -hmm. sold it, and it ended up becoming operation. Yeah. Wow. So, so when I got down with school, I went to see Marvin. He wasn't hiring, and I ended up designing medical equipment and supplies for two years. They kept me out of Vietnam, and then I was making things on my own just to get hired by Marvin. And I went back there two years later and uh, ended up getting a job. <laughs> That's an incredible story. 
amazing. I mean, amazing that, uh, you know, and I, I, I fell in love with it. He was uh, also a mentor, an amazing guy, kind of a character. He was a Steve Jobs character. The only thing that mattered was work, 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 work. His personal life, uh, everything was a mess except the work. I mean, that was it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was he was an interesting guy. And I actually I spent seven years with him and he, he had a stroke and his body fell apart and he died at 59 years old. But mm-hmm. I, I did spend seven years with him and it was kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a favorite uh, product that you work oh, on? Oh, you know what? When, when I was there working, the favorite one is the new one that you're working on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, what happened yesterday, it's like it's like anybody else. It's like a, a songwriter, you know, a guy that writes a, a, you know, a lot of books. You know, it, it's it's the one you're working on. That's yeah. always, yeah. It's and, hard to pick and, a favorite child. Yeah, but but the interesting <laughs> thing is, is we were in the entertainment business. We did things to entertain children. And the entertainment business is built on failure. You know, you're making books, movies, TV shows, Broadway plays, fail, 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 fail. Okay. And that's the good news and the bad news. It's just, that's the nature of it, you know, and, and you have to accept that you have to be ready to, okay, that didn't work. Try another one. Okay. That didn't work. Try another one. Now, if you have another profession, you can't, you know, you're a surgeon, you can't fail too often. You're a lawyer, you know, you can't accountant, you can't fail too often. But the entertainment world, unless you understand that, it, it's not for you, you know. And hmm. I mean, a movie studio makes 20 movies if uh, two or three pay for all the ones that don't make it. And there's no way of testing, no, no way of figuring it out. You know, I mean, it's just it, it's not possible. And some of the biggest hits in the toy industry would have tested terribly. And I can give you examples of a number of them. I mean, it just. Yeah. Anyhow. Oh, my gosh. So when you when you began working on the on the book, uh, going down the memories, was there anything that uh, that you'd forgotten? Anything that surprised you in that process? Well, no, I mean nothing. Nothing really surprised me, but it just it all kind of came back. And and so uh, when I got hired, okay, and I'll tell you the story. That's what I'm going to read a little bit in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But I had never I had never really bought toys. I didn't have any kids. I mean I. You know, so I wasn't in the first thing I did before I started work, I went to Toys R Us and I walked up and down the aisles and I spent the whole day there. And it got to the point where the manager came over and said, can I help you? you know? <laughs> I said, well, I just got this job with this toy designer here in Chicago and I'm just doing a little research in this toy, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, this one here, you know, Mousetrap, this one here, were all done by him. They were manufactured by different companies he said, wow. He said, you can be here all day if you want. I said, okay. <laughs> and, and I, b- before I started a week later, I had spent hour upon hour in Toys R Us, walking up and down the aisles, looking at everything. And, and later on, when I was running the company, if somebody was in a little slump, I said, take the afternoon off and spend it all at the toy store. Now you can't do that too much today. There's smaller stores, yeah. the biggest toy retailer is Amazon, you know, so. Right but it was a great way to get inspired. Yeah. There was a little pang of, of uh, memory that kind of went through me when you mentioned Toys R Us. I'm like, Oh gosh, those, those were the days. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was, it was just overwhelming. I mean, really overwhelming the amount of merchandise. And also what happened is how am I going to come up with something new? <laughs> look, at all, look at all the stuff that's here, you know, everything has been thought of, but you still, we, we still were very successful. And, and what Marvin did 
before I went to work for him, he tried to manufacture toys in the late 50s and he kept losing his ass. I'm not going to do that again. He looked at the record business. He looked at the book business and said, I want to do that in the toy business. I want to design something, show it to a manufacturer. And if he likes it, license and have him pay me a royalty. Doesn't like it. I'll show him another one. I'll show him another one. So he was the pioneer in in doing that in the toy industry. And at first it was very difficult because, because the companies in the industry were typically started by somebody who had an idea for a toy. I mean, Mattel, you know, Elliot Ruth Handler, he was, Elliot was an industrial designer and his wife was the businesswoman and they started this company, Mattel. And Mattel was uh, Matt and Elliot. They bought out Matt early on, but that's where Mattel came from. But uh, Elliot Handler was an industrial designer and came up with the ideas. So we had to outthink the companies in some way. So they became clients of ours. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we, we just had to think of something that they hadn't thought of. Wow. There, you know, and there are authors all over the place, including myself, who are doing that very, that very thing. Every time we open up the laptop or, or open up a notebook, we're like, okay, what's the story nobody else has thought of? What's the one that's going to make me a million? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, but, but you, you know what? You're in, and if you look at all the books on the shelf, how many are the best sellers? I mean, it's, 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 yeah. very, you know, same thing for somebody writing music or anything. It just, but but you you really don't know. I mean, the hard thing is you don't know because it's always a surprise. I mean, when I read Tuesdays with Maury, I mean, I just I was kind of how does the guy do that? He wrote that, and I went out and bought fifty books, and I, I gave one to every friend I had. I was just blown away. But you, so things come along like that that just happen, and and it it was the same. You know, examples in the toy industry. I mean, Barbie was done in the late 50s, okay? Ruth and Elliot had two two kids, a daughter, Barbie, and a son, Ken, okay? That was, <laughs> that was their kids, okay? And and if you tested Barbie in the late 50s, a plastic doll with, you know, big boobs, little feet, I, I, a mother would have said, never would I let my daughter play with something like that. Never, <laughs> you know, but, you know. And, and then Cabbage Patch. All the doll people didn't make it. They said, ugly doll, never sell. Number one, you can't make every doll different. It's impossible to manufacture. So Coleco, who had never made a doll before, said, oh, I think we can make this. You know, we can figure out uh, eye color, clothes, this, that. We can kind of make each one a little tiny bit different. But uh, but nobody would have. I mean, the, the doll experts, Ideal and Mattel, ugly doll, never sell. Okay? So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, Rubik's Cube, okay? Puzzles were $2. This was a $10 puzzle back then. And 99.9% of the people could never solve it, okay? Right. Never sell it, okay? Nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to pay 10 bucks and, and never be able to. And it was one of the bigger toys in the world, you know? I mean, so it, it's just, that's how it is. You know, you just don't know, which is the fun of it. Well, I mean, and sometimes it's even just the simplest of ideas, like Simon. I mean, oh my gosh, I remember like kids in my neighborhood or even family gatherings where we had like tournaments going on with, with Simon to see who could get the high score and, and hold it. And it was just well, amazing. Simon, Simon was my partner, Howard. I, I, had, I had a bunch of partners at Marvin Glass. And then when we closed that in 1988, 
uh, Howard Rubin and myself started over again. It ended up becoming, it was Breslau, Morris, and Terzian, and then it became Big Monster Toys. Everybody called us BMT. I didn't like the name. <laughs> Terzian thought we needed our names on the door. And I said, okay. So nobody called this. Sounded like a law firm, Breslau, Morris, and Terzian. So, so everybody called us BMT. And then when Rubin uh, finally left the business, retired, and Howard did, we, we bought a new building and they said, okay, we need a new name with BMT. So it became big monster toys is what it <laughs> But uh, Simon, uh, so Howard, I did a lot of games. Ruben did a lot of dolls, mechanical stuff. Howard was the greatest toy designer there ever was, Howard Morrison, okay? He did toys, games, plush, ride-on, dolls, Simon. He did the Mickey Mouse phone that we did. But Howard was extraordinary. I mean, he was an extraordinary guy. He was a, a total child at heart. You know, I mean, it was just, uh, he did Bubba. He did SSP Racer. I mean, I, I, could, you know, I mean, it was, and he was, he was just this wonderful, charming guy. He was 10 years older than me. He's 90 years old now, but he always had a twinkle in his eye. And he just, you know, I mean, he was just, so one quick Howard story, uh, Marvin, you know, said, uh, the first partner to do something that brings in, you know, uh, it was a million dollars, you know, in royalties. He's going to give you a check for $50,000 right on the spot. So Howard did it with SSP Racer, okay? Yeah. And Marvin gives him a check for $50,000. This was in the early 70s, which is a hell of a lot of money back yeah. then. And Howard goes to the bank. He puts $40,000 in his account, and he gets a hundred. $10, I mean, $100 bills, okay, $10,000. He comes back to the studio and he starts passing them out to the people at the <laughs> office. I mean, he was just, you know, you help me here. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, it was so much fun. Every day was fun. It really, it really was quite an extraordinary career. Oh, my gosh. Sounds so Howard, Howard comes into my office. I was the managing partner at the time. Yeah. And he said, there's this new Texas instrument chip, uh, TI, you know, 101, you know, very basic. And, and he said, he said, grab a pencil. And I grabbed the pencil and he hit uh, a glass on my desk. And he said, hit it with your pencil. Bing. Okay. And then he said, okay, hit the glass. He hit a plate. Bing. Boom, you know, then he mm -hmm. did it. You know, and he says, I think we can make some sounds and, and, and make this chip uh, make sounds, make lights, and you're following along, like, you know, uh, and, and just adding things. I said, okay, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> you know? And, and the first one was a square box. It was four buttons. And one of our designers, uh, actually made the round thing, the design original. And, and we knew that we had something. I mean, sometimes you think you do and the client doesn't like it, but we, we just knew that. And it was in the very early days and it could only generate 31 sounds that was all the you know to today you can generate a thousand sounds you know i mean there's no <laughs> end to it but yeah. at that time the texas instrument 101 it quit at 31 and somebody must have written them down because they milton bradley said uh, from one to infinity or some ridiculous thing and somebody said no it quits at 31 <laughs> <You know? laughs> but so that was that was huge for us I mean, we just, uh, and Milton Bradley bought it in the second. I mean, they just, uh, because it was, it was really the first uh, game uh, run by a computer chip, first electronic game. That's amazing. That's so amazing. Wow. It made the cover of Newsweek magazine. I mean, it was pretty exciting for us. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So now you have this incredibly creative drive uh, with the, the work that you've done and then being a sculptor as well. 
Um, and then now as an author, has has the writing bug hit you at all? Do you have more ideas well, for books? I, I, actually, I actually have a couple other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and nothing to do with the toy business, nothing to do with anything else. You know, I mean, I in one I've already started on, you know, and it's, I don't want to tell you what it is yet, but it has nothing to do with sculpting or, or toys or anything else. Just another idea. Yeah. And, uh, but But it's not fiction. What I learned in writing is that an appreciation for people who write fiction, you make up all this stuff. I mean, for me, it was just re recalling my life, which was kind of easy in a way, mm -hmm. you know, but to start from scratch with a blank page and make up stuff. Wow. I mean, that's, that's very impressive. You know, I, I, I gained a, a whole new respect for fiction writers, you know, I mean, it's just, wow. Yeah, have, having been through it a couple of times, it's I I start to I, I agree. I have a whole new appreciation for other authors. And then I was just talking to somebody earlier today, and we were discussing talking with other writers like ourselves. And I I I will talk to even like a younger, brand new author, and they're telling me things that just make me go, "Oh my gosh, you are so much better than I am. You are." <laughs> You know, you know so much more than I did at your age. And it's just like, man, you are a better author. And <laughs> it's just... I, I typically throughout my life have, have really focused on nonfiction much more than fiction. Okay. I mean, okay. occasionally I'll, I read Harry Potter. Occasionally I'll, you know, go there. But the majority of my reading is, is really uh, biographies, history, philosophy. I mean, you know, I, other things like that. I mean, I just tend to go that way more than anything else. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just me. I'm, I'm learning, you know, as much as I enjoy reading, uh, it's about, I just wanted to grab a book off my shelf. I sound a little far away, but I, <laughs> I, I just, and I listen to books. I mean, I really enjoy, I, I find, uh, when I drive to and from the studio, it's it's time spent in the car, and I like somebody reading me a story. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. and, and I find my comprehension uh, tends to be much greater listening than it does reading. And 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 sadly, I can't read in bed. I mean, I never turn the page in bed; I fall asleep. <laughs> 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 I don't even try it anymore. You know, gosh. Oh, I used to. I used to have an audio book going on yeah. that I would have during the day. I had a physical book that I would read. I would have that on my uh, uh, my table uh, in the living room. So if I didn't want to watch what you know the kids were watching, whatever, I could pick up my book. And then I had a uh, Kindle by oh, the nightstand, okay. and I would yeah. read. Uh, so I would have like three different books going. Yeah, sometimes. no, 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 no. But uh, yeah, this past year I've just been so busy. Same thing. I go to bed, and within minutes I'm out. I I can't even open my Kindle. Yeah, no, I know. I don't even try. I mean, it never happens. Yeah. <laughs> I just finished listening to A Curious Mind, uh, The Secret to a Bigger Life by Brian Grazier, you know, a famous producer in Hollywood. And I was, okay. was very impressed with how his approach on curiosity. And I realized that that was something I had all my life. I was curious about all kinds of things, you know, and I think that's a terrific word and a terrific book, Curious Mind. Okay. Yeah. I may have to uh, check that out. I think my most recent nonfiction uh, was a biography. And it was uh, Phil Collins' biography. Oh, okay. So and that was that was a lot of fun. I had no idea he had such a history with the Beatles, even before he started yeah. playing music publicly. So that was interesting. Yeah. Fun. <clears throat> so, uh, I mean, 
I was going to say what's next for you, but uh, <laughs> we kind of discussed that a little bit that well, you're exploring you know, some I, things. I, the sculpting is, is full time for me. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I went through a series of things. I started doing realistic bronze figures. I have uh, two pieces at the uh, Comer Children's Hospital, University of Chicago of kids. Uh, and, and I had a lot of success with that. And, uh, and then uh, I studied with a woman for four years uh, doing figurative work. And then she ended up moving away. And then I started doing abstract stuff. And uh, so I, I've had a lot of success with, I have two pieces at the University of Illinois, two giant steel and stone and boulder pieces. That's kind of stuff I'm doing. And then I just installed in March a piece uh, in Uruguay, you know, uh, and I'm going back down there. Uh, for the dedication uh, on October 13th. Hmm. Uh, about uh, 2002, uh, the toy industry had conventions every year. Okay, everybody got together and everything else. And, you know, we went to a place and in the morning had meetings and the afternoon was tennis and golf and, you know, interacted with people. And it was very good for me because I met new clients there and everything else. And we always had a keynote speaker. And the keynote speaker was a marketing guy, a toy guy, this, that. But in 2002, the keynote speaker was Nando Parado, who was one of the survivors of the plane crash in the Andes in 1973. Okay. And, and I kind of hung out with him and ended up becoming friends with him. And then uh, I saw him speak in, in Dallas. I saw he wrote his own book called Miracle in the Andes. I don't know if you know the live book or the movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. That, that's that. the story. And then he wrote his own book. He came uh, to Chicago to a bookstore. Uh, and I went there and bought 35 of his books. He came back to the toy studio and he signed for everything. Then I saw him again in Lake Tahoe speaking. And then my brother and I, who do a lot of traveling together, went down to hike in Chile. We went to Argentina and we went to Uruguay to see Nando. We met his wife, he has kids. And uh, I said, is there anything commemorating what happened he said there really isn't and I made a sketch I had an idea for a, a sculpture and uh, so it took me a year and a half to do in Chicago and then uh, it took uh, three months to ship it down there it went on a rail card uh, car mm. uh, to Norfolk and then on a boat for two months and they so now it's in and I went down there to assemble it uh, back in March but uh, I'm going down again October 13th uh, and that's the 50th anniversary of the plane crash. Uh, wow. So uh, it's, a, it's an abstract piece. It's a giant boulder. And on the boulder are 16 stones, kind of rugby-sized stones attached. And those stones represent the survivors. Mm -hmm. And then on steel rods up in the air, 12 feet in the air, are smaller stones, 29 of them. And they move in the wind. And those represent the 29 people who died. Oh, yeah. wow. So it's, uh, it was quite, quite something for me to do. And, uh, yeah. Anyhow. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing uh, that sort of thing. I still, you know, make games and try stuff. I'm still playing around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's in your blood, but, but sculpting is really kind of full time for me. You know? Yeah. But I mean, it sounds like, like we, we were talking about before that you're, you're very creative and it seems you've got to have that constant creative output. And I, yeah, I can relate sure. to that. I, I, sure. I do different things myself yeah. once in a while, uh, whether it's the show or whatever, but I mean, I like painting fishing lures and, uh, wow. 
because the bass, you know, the fish will like to chew it up. And after a while, I'm like, oh, I get to sand this down and make it something different <laughs> instead. And, uh, but uh, well, I, yeah. I, I believe that that creativity is is uh, fostered by pressure. You have a deadline, you know. I mean, mm. you have a deadline for, you know, a toy client. You have a deadline for, you know, anything. And, and so in creative people are not motivated to be creative by money. They're motivated by other things. You know, you can't say, okay, I'm going to pay you more money, be more creative. It doesn't work that way. But, but Marvin was very good. Uh, and and I, I did the same thing. And Marvin, if you were there two, three days and you made a prototype of something, you brought it into the conference room to show the vice president of a toy company. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah. and so you needed the feedback. And if the guy looked at it, said, nope, terrible. Next. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but if he looked at it and said, wow, this is fantastic. I, that's what you, that's what you work for. Okay. It's just, you know, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the grease paint. I mean, that's what it is. That's what motivate. So people are motivated by that, you know, mm-hmm. by singing in front of an audience, being in the theater in front of a live audience. I mean, you know, so creative people uh, are motivated by different things. You know? Yeah. that's important to understand that it is yes that failure is a huge part of it yep and that's that's a nice little uh book in there you you were talking before about uh the importance of failure and working for it and then uh we'll kind of wrap it up here with uh how important it is again so fantastic where can uh where can people find and follow you to uh to learn more about you and your sculpting and your book well, uh, the book, you know, there's a website. You can also get the book on Amazon. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's been on there for, for a little a little while already. You know, and uh, the Game Maker's Life, and uh, and there's a website for it. Uh, you can actually look up uh, JeffreyBreslow.com and see some of my sculptures that I'm doing. You know, so uh, yes, that's okay. Perfect. All possible. All right. Well, and we'll put some links on the uh, episode show notes for that and uh, for where Rebecca can go and find the book and follow you. And uh, yeah, we'll get that. And I guess it looks like it's available August 30th. So we should have this episode up. Uh, Actually, it should be up before that. But uh, in any case, yeah, everybody, you can go and pre-order the book and uh, grab a copy for yourself. That's perfect kind of book for the for reading or put it on the table and start a conversation and uh, (laughs) jump down memory lane. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, for joining us. And uh, it's time for me to step aside with my writer's block coffee and hand the floor to my guest, Jeffrey Breslow with A Game Maker's Life. From chapter four, let's see what you have. My interview with Marvin Glass and Associates was scheduled for 10 a.m. on Tuesday, April 11th, 1967, two months shy of my 24th birthday. My two-year-long dream of getting an interview was about to become reality. I had no idea who would conduct my interview, but I went back and reread the Saturday Evening Post article about Marvin Glass just in case. It reassured me to believe I had a little understanding of this complicated man. In reality, I didn't understand him at all, but I felt in my gut I wanted to work for him. Organized and prepared, I felt confident in both my portfolio and my ability to pitch. I made up my mind that I wasn't walking out of that office without a job. I knew the salary question would come up if I was lucky enough to be offered a position. I had just been fired from a job paying me $5,500 a year, which is a little more than $100 a week. But I felt destined to be a toy designer. So I decided to ask for $10,000 a year, which was a big number in 1967. 
To strengthen my resolve, I practice saying the number out loud in front of my mirror, $10,000 a year, $10,000 a year. I rehearsed in a normal voice to make it sound matter of fact. I pump myself up, cheering myself on and repeating, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to get this job. I rang the doorbell at exactly 10 a.m. and got buzzed in immediately. The ground floor lobby exhibited mirrors, leather sofas, and a fabulous nude female sculptor by Frank Gallo, one of my instructors at the University of Illinois. I was already dazzled, and I was just standing in the entrance space. When I climbed the stairs and reached the waiting area, I noticed two Mies van der Rohe leather and stainless steel Barcelona chairs. I studied these in my art history class, but this was the first time in front of the real thing. Wow. Pauline Camberis, the receptionist, had a slender model's figure and long black flowing hair. She wore a full-length dress in a beautiful flower pattern. She welcomed me warmly and showed me into a conference room through a side door. Pauline said, Mr. Glass will be in shortly, turned like a dancer and walked out and left me alone. She was stunning. A few minutes later, the door at the end of the room opened and in walked Marvin Glass with a cigarette hanging from his lips. At that time, it was commonplace for people to smoke in the office. Marvin wore a beautiful silk tie, custom-made shirt with MG monogrammed on his cuff, fancy gold and diamond cufflinks. He had short brown hair streaked with gray and intelligent brown eyes. He was so skinny, his pants were slipping off his hips and he looked unkempt. The Saturday Evening Post had lied when they reported that Marvin Glass was five feet, five inches. He was more like five, three and weighed about 120 pounds. I was six feet tall and 175 pounds. I towered over Marvin. And when I gave him a firm handshake, his small hand was limp. I couldn't believe that this small man with a feeble handshake was the titan of the toy inventing business. Could this 52-year-old man really be my dream boss? Marvin said, let's see your stuff. I reminded myself to go slow and not to rush. Just as I was about to start, Marvin put up his hand and stopped me. He lifted the phone and asked, do you want some coffee? I replied, no, thank you, and decided it was a good sign that he wasn't in a hurry. Seconds later, Pauline walked in carrying a sterling silver tray with one cup of coffee and cream and sugar. She must have known he would call for coffee because she had everything ready. After loading his coffee with lots of cream and four teaspoons of sugar, Marvin stirred, took one sip, set down his cigarette and said, okay, I thought it's showtime. I went through my presentation slowly, making eye contact when I could. He didn't ask a single question. He didn't sip his coffee or pull out another cigarette. My delivery took about five minutes and I was done. He looked me in the eye and I looked back. I would like you to come work for me, Glass said. I was shocked. He paused for a moment and said, what kind of money are you looking for? My preparation in front of the mirror kicked in and I answered $10,000 a year. That's a lot of money for a kid your age, Marvin said. I didn't let my head drop as I replied, Mr. Glass, I'm worth it. With that, he stood up. Glass put out his hand again. And when we shook, his hand was still uncomfortably limp. Okay, you got the job for $10,000 a year. You start next Monday, he said. It was literally that short. And he walked out of the room saying, see you Monday. We start at 7.30 and don't be late. He showed me out to the door to Pauline's area. She already guessed I was hired and smiled, see you Monday. I walked down the stairs and out of the building, but I could have skipped. I was trying to stay composed until I got on the street and could yell, yippee, but it wasn't easy because my heart was racing. When I walked out onto LaSalle Street on Tuesday, April 11th, 1967, 
The sky was clear, the sun was bright, and then I panicked. I realized I hadn't asked Marvin one single question. Do I have an office? Can you show me around? How much vacation time do I get? Will I get health insurance? None of that mattered. I had just landed my dream job. This was the job I had been thinking about ever since John Spinello told me about the Marvin Glass Company when I was a sophomore in Ed Zagorski's design class at the University of Illinois. And I was getting paid a huge $10,000 a year. It was a morning of pure joy. Right, that was Jeffrey Breslow reading a sample chapter from his upcoming book, A Game Maker's Life. The book is available August 30th, but you can pre-order it right now by clicking the link in the show notes. Uh, don't forget to also follow Jeffrey in the uh, social media links that I've got down there as well. And podcast friends, our affiliate, our uh, sponsor, Scrivener, and uh, the, uh, the link for buymeacoffee.com is down there as well if you are interested. No matter what you do, make sure you hit that subscribe button, though, so you don't miss out next time when I'm back with an all-new author, a brand-new book, and an all-new sample chapter. Take care, everybody.